we're going to hear now from an international leader and a global voice in the nursing and midwifery community, a Professor James Buchan. He's adjunct professor with the World Health Organization Collaborating Centre for Nursing and Midwifery uh, at uh, the at UTS, the University of Technology, Sydney. He's also a visiting professor at the University of Edinburgh. I'm hoping desperately for a Scottish accent. And he's a senior fellow with the Health Foundation in London, which is a charity. James has literally worked all over the world uh, as a consultant, but most recently as an advisor to the Scottish government on workforce during COVID. He also is the editor-in-chief of a peer-reviewed journal that's all about human resources in health. Please go ballistic in an Australian kind of a way for James Buchan. Thank you very much, uh, Julie. And um, I'll, I'll maximise the Scottish accent just for you. It's a great pleasure to be able to be with you in spirit to actually visit you today. I'm speaking from and we're at that uh, in Scotland, and it's just gone with you here. So, uh, you're talking about staggered lunch, or by midnight, the staggering for other reasons, right? So, um, we connect It's my uh, duty, my responsibility, to provide some scene setting, uh, which is going to be really focusing on. Um, the issues related to the impact of the pandemic only on the nursing workforce, but also uh, to then look at the um, context in which this is occurring and trying to place Australia in, in the larger picture. Uh, I haven't been able to be back in Sydney or elsewhere in Australia for a couple of years now, and I'm very close to the country that's going on. So, I will try and uh, give you some uh, contextual information and then conclude by setting out some options for hopefully um, a better nursing And what I will do is break about halfway through. So there's a section A, the first few points there. Then we'll stop for some QA and then I'll go on to the section B, the final two points there to try and um, give you the audience some respite from too much Scottish accents. So um, with that as a backdrop, um, what I'd like to do, and it would have even been uh, better if I had been with you, but that's not possible. So um, I'm starting with a little bit of an audience quiz. So this is um, the key points from a report proposing what to do about nursing shortages. Uh, and uh, you can see there, uh, the, the core elements are probably not a big surprise to you or anyone who's been involved in, in nursing will be aware of the discussions around skill mix, improving retention, uh, and particularly during the pandemic, encouraging returners back into the workforce. If I was with you, um, audience participation quiz, this question would be, well, which country is this from and which year? And um, I'd probably offer you a five pound Scottish note to anyone who um, was able to guess both. Uh, the way the pound is going at the moment, probably grab it quickly. But in any case, um, we can't go through with the full participation. 
So just to give an answer there, uh, the uh, report is from England, but it's from 1945 and essentially is immediately at the end of World War II. So the, the globe had just come through an existential crisis. There were nursing shortages in many countries and these were the solutions that were identified back in 1945. Now, I, I put this up really for three reasons. Firstly, just to reinforce that there are not many really new and novel solutions. Most of what we talk about when we look at nursing shortages and trying to address their impact has been around, has been tried before. And the real issue is not coming up with new ideas. It's having sustained implementation of the ideas that make sense and with full funding. And that's where most countries fall short. Uh, the second reason really to flag this is just to reinforce the point that, um, you know, this is England, but it could have been Australia. It could be Scotland. It could be Germany. It could be the United States. The, the issues are very, very similar and have been. And the final reason I put it up is that there's, there's a kind of glaring omission there, which is international recruitment, which um, has ebbed and flowed across the period since World War II. But at the moment, for many countries, including my own, is probably the single uh, most impactful solution that is being used to get numbers of nurses up quickly. I'm going to come back to that issue later on in terms of the, the ethics as, as well as the impact, because I'm aware that uh, in Australia you are uh, looking at and discussing this issue at the moment as well. So that's just a very brief backdrop to get us thinking. And really, my point here is that I'm going to go into more detail and talk about solutions, but innovation is only available up to a point. And what we need to be looking at is sustained, coordinated, fully funded policy solutions. So um, how does the global nursing workforce look? And um, we were fortunate that the first ever full analysis of the global nursing workforce was conducted back 2019, 2020 by the World Health Organization. The report was called The State of the World's Nursing. And with um, impeccable timing, they completed the report and published it about one month after the pandemic had begun to hit. So essentially what this report does is present the pre-pandemic profile of the global nursing work. It gives us a baseline to track change against. It gives us a sense of how things were looking pre-pandemic. And at that time, there were around about 28 million nurses around the world. And WHO estimated that at that time, the shortage was around about 5.9 to 6 million nurses using a very simple gap analysis to, to get some sort of metric around what the shortage looked like. And not surprisingly, uh, most of the shortages were evident in low resource country, low and lower middle income countries. So the, 
The shortages are not equally distributed around the world. Uh, they're most obvious, most evident, and their impact is, is clearest in uh, low resource countries. Some other headlines, uh, round about one in six of the world's nurses was expected to retire in the next 10 years. Round about 4.7, let's say 5 million nurses would need to be educated just to replace those who are going to retire. And the countries that that is going to be most pronounced are the high income countries, such as Australia, such as the UK, such as the US, where significant proportion of nurses are coming into retirement age. So setting aside any need to increase the workforce overall, there's a very big challenge just to run hard to stand still to get that 5 million into the workforce. Uh, we can also look across the world and see significant differences in the ability of different countries to uh, graduate more nurses into the workforce. And, and not surprisingly, high-income countries on average, about three times more nurse graduation rate, around about 38.7 uh, per 100,000 population compared to low-income countries. And just beginning to pick up again on this issue of international recruitment and mobility, about one in every eight nurses is practicing in a country other than the one where they were born or trained in. So uh, nursing is a very geographically mobile profession within countries and between countries. And then uh, that's, as I said, pre-pandemic, then we had the pandemic and um, we're all, all too aware of, of some of its impacts and I'll summarize some of the issues, but more focus on policy responses. And um, I suspect, and for most of you in your room in Sydney, this is not new, but it's important to understand that um, it's essentially impacted all countries and every country's nursing workforce has had these challenges to deal with. So many healthcare systems were fragile even before the pandemic. And as I've already identified, many healthcare systems already had nursing shortages. And what the pandemic has essentially done has exposed, exacerbated, sought out problems and um, really made them worse. So all the indicators have been going the wrong direction for nurses. Uh, we've had um, very significant infection rates in some parts of the world. We've unfortunately seen thousands of deaths. And um, what is becoming ever more apparent now are relation, uh, issues related to mental health challenges, uh, moral injury, stress because of having to continue to work in high pressure environments for too long, often without adequate PPE. Some parts of the world, there's been a significant increase in abuse and attacks on nurses. And what we're beginning to see now, and I'm aware this is happening in Australia and elsewhere, is that whatever shortages exist beforehand are being exacerbated. We're seeing nurses hang on for a year or two and contribute to dealing with the pandemic. But at some point, they're burning out and intention to leave and leaving rates are becoming 
more significant and we're seeing more uh, evidence, for example, also of long-term absence. So um, just to really look in, in more detail at how the pandemic has impacted, the, the next two, three slides, I'm just summarizing what we are aware different countries have been uh, doing in terms of policy responses in relation to the nursing workforce. And as I said, I don't think any of this will be a surprise to you. Uh, what we have seen initially in terms of the, the surge response is uh, rapid scaling up using the existing workforce in the first instance. So looking at shifting staff to high pressure areas such as ICU and, and looking at requiring or demanding of nurses that they work longer hours work longer shifts, work different shift patterns, and perhaps be redeployed from one clinical area to another, sometimes the adequate training. And we have also seen um, a midterm solution, which is trying to bring non-practicing nurses back into the workforce, fast-tracking them as returners. Uh, also putting student nurses onto frontline work, bringing in temporary and agency staff, and finally, fast-tracking integration of international nurses and also some countries looking at integrating refugees in the country already with nursing qualifications who previously had not been enabled to practice. So the, the bunch of different implementation issues there, many have been tried. And many countries have used all or most of those, and I'm aware that Australia is one that has. What we're also seeing, of course, now is, is the shift towards the, the ongoing phase, the working with COVID, uh, understanding that uh, it has been with us for several years. Uh, it has spiked, it has regressed, it has spiked again. And I am uh, well aware that you are currently facing a significant spike uh, combined with uh, flu. So we've seen uh, in this kind of longer term working with COVID element, nurses being used to deliver vaccine programs, looking at uh, more flexible deployment of nurses. Uh, we have seen in some countries the reduction or end of the short term volunteer returner phase, uh, for example, here in the UK, the temporary register that was established to get more uh, returners back into the workforce will be closing down at the end of September. Whether that is sensible is, I think, um, a moot question at the moment, because I think it's very likely we will go into another pandemic spike in our winter from around about uh, October onwards. Uh, we've seen uh, attempts to get frontline students back in to, to complete their education, but that has been linked to uh, higher attrition rates from some, some parts of the world because these student nurses unfortunately have burnt out. We are, as I said, seeing a situation where there is a need to provide cover and relief for burnt out nurses and, and nurses with ill health. Now that is very patchy in terms of how that is being provided in different countries. As it is, um, the ability to provide additional training to get more nurses into uh, high pressure areas. Many countries, uh, including Australia, 
uh, elsewhere have been looking at uh, much more use of digi and technology to support to try and enable uh, better connections with patients at a distance. I think there's an exaggerated effect here uh, suggesting that this is the solution to all the pandemic problems I think is, is naive. It requires the right technology, it requires nurses and other staff with the right skills and training, and um, that is not yet the case in most countries. And finally, um, we're recognizing the need, the need to look at new supply coming into the workforce, focusing on the areas that have been identified as priorities or which the pandemic has exposed as being particularly in shortage. And in most countries, that includes intensive care, public health, primary care, and um, a real recognition that there is scope to make much more use of specialist nurses and advanced practice, including nurse practitioners. And I think this is one area where Australia is behind the curve compared to uh, countries that I think is growing quite rapidly. Uh, and finally, just as I mentioned earlier, there is a clear indication of some countries ramping up very quickly their international recruitment. And I've got some data I'll come back to on that. So um, what has that all meant in terms of impact? And um, my presentation in large part is drawn from a report published earlier this year, which I'm, I'll give the link to at the end of my talk. And we looked across the globe and we came up with literally dozens of studies that had assessed the impact on nurses in a range of low and high income countries. And there is unfortunately um, a common thread running through and that is the uh, extent to which high workload, stress, burnout, low staffing, uh, lack of participation or ability to participate or be enabled to partic participate in decision-making has led to um, even more burnout. And uh, what we are seeing in these studies is a range of, of negative psychological impacts up to and including uh, suicide or suicidal thoughts, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and this manifesting itself in increased leaving rates, higher burn and um, higher burnout linked to higher absence. And what we're beginning to see now as countries are coming through, in some cases, the third wave of the pandemic, is that nurses can't continue, some of them, and early retirement or stepping down hours worked or seeking work in less challenging environments uh, are becoming ever more apparent. I'm not going to go through these in detail. Um, it's just really to reinforce this global concerning issue that we appear to be on the cusp in many countries, including, I understand, Australia, of increased outflow, reduced retention, increased outflow, 
and therefore exacerbating any existing shortages and raising even more concerns around safe staffing and where we will get um, the next replacement cohorts of nurses from. So really just to summarize that, shortages have been exacerbated. A critical point is that there is good evidence that burnout is linked to poorer quality of care, uh, lower patient satisfaction and reduced productivity. So it, it has a, a knock-on effect into the health systems, which is negative. So it's the nurses who are experiencing the burnout, but there is knock-on effect, negative impacts on quality of care productivity. Pre-pandemic causes of burnout have been magnified and we're seeing, as I said, higher absenteeism, uh, leaving rates, stepping down, etc. And those who remain are having to pick up the tab and try and continue to work with increasing levels of stress. And real concerns that intention to leave uh, will or is becoming nurses who have left. And a big unknown as yet around the impact of long COVID in both the impact on demand for healthcare, particularly chronic care, but also the impact on nurses, uh, many, of, many of whom have had COVID and uh, it's not clear yet, but there are the beginnings of indications that many of them will have long-term conditions that they have to deal with, which may uh, interrupt their career opportunities. So just to summarize this, I'm coming to the end of my the first part of my session. We can then have Q&A if people are interested. So countries have been through two or three waves, different variants. Um, the initial surge phase has, in some cases, had to be repeated, but there is now also this longer term sustain phase, which is the, the working with COVID. And um, you can point to countries that have done this relatively well. You can point to countries that have done this relatively poorly. Within countries, you can point to states that have done well, states that have done less well. And uh, one of the underlying major concerns is that many systems are putting a lot of emphasis on individual nurse resilience to somehow continue to get through this. And the reality is the emphasis should not be on the nurse to be resilient. It should be on the system to support the nurse. And um, this is a message that needs to be got through clearly to policymakers in, in many countries where it's still the default is somehow nurses will continue to to step up when uh, there comes a point where they just cannot. So um, pandemic has made existing nursing shortages much, much worse. And there's an urgent need both for immediate and longer term policy support. And I'll come back to that uh, in the second part of my presentation. What I'll do now is just sort of finish this first part with a final slide. And this just looks at what might be the cumulative impact of a relatively small percentage of nurses leaving the profession. So this takes the 2020 baseline of right about 27.9 million nurses working and the pre-existing shortage of 
billion. And if we just factor in uh, for each additional 1% of nurses left the profession globally, that's about 280,000 nurses. So 4% more leaving is 1 million fewer nurses. And that, that kind of metric is not nearly as bad as it appears as it could be getting in some countries. So we are looking at a situation where the shortage of 6 million could get up to 8 or 10 or even more than that in assumptions that are not unrealistic given what we're beginning to hear about uh, long-term absence, reduced hours, uh, early leaving, early retirement and burnout. So that's uh, a very quick backdrop. And what I'm happy to do now, partly to give you a break from hearing my gorgeous Scottish accent for a few minutes, but partially also to get some engagement. Uh, I'm happy to take uh, questions and answers. Thanks Professor James, your voice is gorgeous. You'll focus not on the individual resilience of the nurses. Well received here in the Antipodes. And it's my great pleasure to introduce my first question moderator, working the Slido, Anne Samuelson, Manager Professional Services. First question, please. She's my beautiful assistant. Give her another round of applause. Thank you very much. So the for the first question, is there a country, James, or system that is doing a good job of sustaining their nursing workforce and what are they doing right? Wow, that's the easy question. <laughs> um, I, I think what I can do is, it's all about relative. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to suggest any country has got it all right, but you can look at countries that have um, been better than most in, in certain elements of the pandemic response and, and support to the nursing workforce. Uh, I would point, for example, to some of the Scandinavian countries where there has been uh, uh, a much better program and policy intervention around uh, staffing levels and support. And this, I, I don't think this happened all of a sudden. It really reflects the way they do things. Um, and therefore, when the pandemic hit, um, they were in a better place to respond effectively. I think you can also point to other countries which have, um, in, in some elements, demonstrated good things. Um, France, for example, already had uh, a reserve force of nurses and doctors um, in place, ready to be called upon if there was any kind of national emergency. So they were able to mobilize um, that group relatively quickly. Uh, I think you could also point to Ireland, for example, which has um, put in place, I think, some reasonably good uh, focused efforts on supporting stress and burnout uh, of its healthcare workforce, nurses and others. James, we'll just do two quick um, questions. We're naturally interactive yeah. here in the Antipodes. Another question, please. Okay. Why has Australia failed to fully implement the nurse practitioner model when it has been so successful overseas, particularly during the pandemic? Okay, um, I think there are um, two main reasons. 
One is that there is and continues to be significant opposition to that from other uh, main stakeholders, the medical profession, particularly, or elements of the medical profession, to be more accurate. Uh, and secondly, the uh, fee-for-service model that you have uh, really constrains doctors wishing to let go too easily and, and enable more nurses to come into advanced practice roles. But I think it's going to have to happen in Australia. You are way behind the curve if you look at developments in many European countries, and um, it, it's illogical, inefficient, and almost immoral not to allow it to happen. James, just be more specific then, which sections of the medical community are the key barriers to this change? Uh, well, my understanding is that the, the, the American, uh, sorry, the Australian Medical Association has, has fairly strong views on this, um, and other parts of the profession are much more supportive, perhaps those in primary care, rural care, for example. So it's a, it's a need to um, influence from the top, influence governments and policymakers, and make them realise that uh, not doing this is going to damage population health. I want to know whether you're wearing a kilt, but I'll hold that for later. <laughs> and we'll just take one more question now, if we may. Thank you, Anne. Okay. Um, why, James, are we, um, are we concerned about the number of early career nurses and midwives that leave the profession after only a short um, time due to stress? What can we possibly do to keep them? I think there are two, yeah, this is an issue in, in other countries as well. And I, I think I'd identify two or three key uh, interventions that need to be worked through. One is, is to ensure that they have realistic experience during uh, the pre-registration education so that um, it doesn't come a shock on day one of the, the, the day job. I think secondly, um, many systems fail to provide adequate support, mentoring and supervision in the early years of careers. And thirdly, I think there has to be a recognition that um, uh, a newly minted nurse on day one is not you know, a fully-fledged professional and there has to be uh, some tolerance of that within the system and that isn't always the case, particularly when you're looking at short staffing in many systems. Look, thank you so much, James. Anne and I will disappear and pop back again for more questions when you tell us, but could you clap him for those questions, please? Okay, thanks for that, and um, kilt or no kilt, I will progress. Next few slides, uh, this is just to put Australia in context, and I will, I've got I think five graphs, just going to skip through them reasonably quickly, and then I'll summarise uh, what they mean uh, at the end in terms of how Australia uh, maps out against comparators. This data is all from uh, the Organisation of Economic Cooperation Development, which collates data from high-income countries. So, around about 39 countries in Europe, North America, South America, and, and parts of Asia. And uh, this is just the first one. This is about this is about money. How, how much does each country? 
have in terms of expenditure per capita on, on health. And what you can see is immediately a huge variation. OECD average there in red, uh, it's about $4,080 US converted to purchasing power parity. And what you can see there is, is pretty marked variation with the United States as a weird outlier at the, the left there, where they spend phenomenal amounts of money for no necessarily great outcomes overall. And um, Australia, you're, you're nestled there at a little above the OECD average at, um, I think it's about $4,900 there. So you're, you're above average, but you're kind of with the pack really. So um, getting a bit more into crunchy territory, nurses per population is um, a reasonable loose indicator of availability of, of nurses. And uh, what I've got here is the data with a white blob is 2000 and the green blob is 2019 to try and show where there's been change. And again, we've got in the middle there, the OECD average in, in red, and it's about 8.8 .8 practicing nurses per thousand population. And um, Australia, you're, you're a bit above that. Uh, you're around about 12. And again, you can see a significant variation across the globe. And just to reinforce, these are the high income countries. So even within that quite narrow group, very significant variation. The countries of the highest levels of nurses, Switzerland, Norway, Iceland, Finland, uh, tend to be again, uh, Northern Europe and, and Scandinavia. And what we can see for most countries is that there has been some growth. The white blob is below the green blob um, across the period. Interestingly, um, United Kingdom, my own country, which is just below average at 8.2, is one of the few that didn't show increase in nurses across that time period. So, uh, nursing graduates. This is um, a loose measure of the extent to which a country is able to replace or increase potentially its workforce in terms of new graduates coming out of the universities into the workforce. What we've got here is nursing graduates per 100,000 population. Uh, OEC average is about 44, and uh, you're there on the left, you're, you're top, 108, very close to Switzerland and Korea. Uh, my own country, UK, is down there at 30, uh, below average. And again, very significant variation across the different countries of the OECD. So the extent to which countries can or have the potential to replace or increase from uh, domestic sources varies a lot. And um, doctor nurse ratio, just a, a kind of sense of the, the relative availability of, of the two key health professions in almost any care environment. OECD average there in red, about 2.6 nurses per doctor across the OECD countries. But again, a very significant variation from little more than one to one in some countries and 
at the other end, if you look at Japan and Finland, they're about uh, four and a half or more nurses per doctor. And Australia, you're in there at uh, just over three, clustering with quite a lot of other countries. So again, you're very much um, with the pack. And uh, just a final slide here, share of foreign trained nurses, which um, it's a point in time indicator of how reliant a country is on uh, foreign trained nurses. And um, again, very significant variation around the OECD average of about 6% of nurses being foreign trained. If you look at some countries uh, down Portugal, Denmark, Finland, have got little more than 1%, almost insignificant. And then if you look at the other end, towards the top there, uh, Australia, 18.1, United Kingdom, 15.4. We are countries that have, um, in the past, and in some cases, even now, uh, continue to have very high levels of reliance on international recruits. And this is something that the pandemic exposed as a potential risk when uh, barriers and borders closed, but is already being ramped up by some countries as a way of trying to make good uh, their domestic shortages. So if we put all of these together and just see how Australia's panned out, there you are in terms of ranking um, expenditure on health, 14 out of 38, nurses per population, 7 out of 38, nurse graduates top, uh, nurse doctors, 13 out of 38, and third highest the reliance on, on foreign trained. So that's a, that's a very quick snapshot of just where you fit. Um, not bad, I think, overall compared to many other countries, but already illustrating some areas where you are um, reliant, particularly on the international foreign trained as, as an issue for consideration. And um, the nurse graduates that you have been seeing in recent years, I'm well aware there are questions about their ability to get jobs and um, whether the point that was made in the Q&A, whether they can be able to continue to practice um, effectively uh, and grow in their career. So um, what has the pandemic been doing to international recruitment? Here's just some stats, just again, just to kind of for your consideration. So England, the country just south of me, um, has, as we speak, about 40,000 registered nurse posts that are vacant. That's 10%. So that's, that, those are posts for which there is funding that they have not been able to fill, 10%. Germany uh, is looking at um, a very significant need to increase its nursing workforce. Uh, Switzerland is saying the same. In fact, Switzerland is unique. It, a couple of months ago, it had a national referendum where the population voted if they wanted to uh, increase the nursing workforce and enable more nurses to move into advanced practice. 
the population voted yes, um, and the government is now having to work out how to deliver uh, on those commitments. And uh, the United States, uh, the, the largest English-speaking nursing workforce in the world, uh, round about estimate 50% left their jobs in the first year of the pandemic. And um, there will be, they're thinking around about 194,000 nurse vacancies every year. So what we are seeing is demand increasing because COVID is increasing healthcare requirements. Nurse supply in many countries declining because of the pandemic impacts on individual nurses. And this growing gap uh, becoming ever more apparent and countries in some cases almost stumbling around trying to work out what to do to fill that gap. And international recruitment is now very much ramping up in many countries. So um, we already are a situation where the top three top four countries in terms of international nurses. Um, United States, almost 200,000. UK, about 100,000. Germany, 71,000. Australia, 53,000. So already significant numbers. But what we're seeing is those countries are increasing their recruitment activity. But other countries that didn't used to be so prominent in international recruitment are now getting into this game. France, Switzerland, Canada, for example. And the countries being targeted are also broadening out. So uh, we're hearing uh, recently, for example, Nigeria, Lebanon, Brazil, Algeria, uh, and the other countries on the list there being targeted for active international recruitment. We're all aware that India, the Philippines have uh, essentially a situation where there is a train for export model where the nurses pay for their education, the education is provided in the private sector, and the assumption is that the nurses will qualify and move abroad. And uh, I think this, is, this model will continue for those countries, but is also likely to be tried out by other countries who aspire to move into this space because at scale it gives significant potential for remittance money coming back if these nurses as many do uh, remit some of their earnings back to family in the home country but we are also seeing a situation where countries which have very low numbers of nurses already uh, where the, there is not private sector involvement. This is um, public funded education. And these nurses are being targeted for recruitment. And that is having a negative impact on the ability of countries uh, to deliver safe care. And this, this list here is from a recent World Bank study that looked at countries in Africa where uh, there was a reducing supply of nurses. So, we have all to be aware that um, the international mobility issue brings with it uh, risks and responsibilities that need to be considered. Just to put uh, 
a figure on that. This, this is the, the number of nursing colleges in India that are training nurses to bachelor's level. Um, and it's grown from a few in 2000 up to, in 2020, over 2000. And this phenomenal growth is a response to international recruitment. Uh, these are not nurses, many of them going into the domestic market. They're being trained with the assumption and plan that they will move to another country when they, they qualify. And um, I mentioned the UK has been pretty active. So what I've done here, this is long-term data. The annual number of new nurses uh, coming onto the Nursing and Midwifery Council register in the UK across the period from 1990 up to March this year. Uh, the data is in, in, in two color blocks. Um, red is non-European Union countries, uh, blue is European Union countries. And um, what you can see is that we were very active in international recruitment around about the year 2000, 2001, then it dropped way, way down and then began to pick up again. Uh, we had Brexit in the Brexit vote rather than Brexit itself had an impact. And beyond that, we saw a shift from international recruitment in the EU to international recruitment outside of the EU, notably in the last 12 months in countries, uh, India, Philippines, Nigeria, Ghana. And what you can also see is that the impact of the pandemic on inflow has been uh, virtually incidental. There was a slight drop in 2020, 21, but it's already picked up. Uh, to the point where this year, this last 12 months historically will be the highest number ever, or at least the highest number in the last 30 years of numbers of nurses being recruited from other countries coming into the UK as a result of the shortages we have. And um, I, maybe the UK is most prominent at the moment, but other countries I know are, are getting into this um, in, in a big scale. Germany, for example, which never really used to be involved much in international recruitment, is doing so. Other countries such as Finland, which again, previously has no track record, are doing it. And I know Australia, US, Canada, the high income angle firm countries. So we're all going to be chasing uh, a nursing workforce, which already is short of around 6 million. So uh, what are we going to do about it? Um, WHO Code of Practice and International Recruitment of Health Personnel was signed off by all UN countries. So that includes Australia, includes UK. Um, it's been in place for 12 years now. And it, it aims to ensure that recruitment is uh, quote unquote ethical and doesn't have negative impacts. And uh, WHO publish what they call a support and safeguards list, which at the moment I think is 47 countries, which um, are supposed to be not targeted for active international recruitment because uh, their health workforce is already so short.
I've got a couple of final slides, which really just are summarizing and getting to the, the final policy messages. But I, I don't want to let the international recruitment issue go without recognizing that it's something that we need to monitor very closely because um, I think there is real damage being done in some countries and the potential for more uh, because uh, high income countries are essentially solving their shortages by creating shortages in countries that can afford it. Okay, um, two final slides, just really, uh, this is a synthesis of everything that we summarized in the main report, um, looking at global shortages. What factors affect nurse retention and to what extent has the pandemic um, brought in more potential for solutions and more requirement for solutions? So the pre-existing factor list on the left I'm not going to go through that in detail, but that essentially is the shopping list to think through when you're looking to try and improve retention of nurses in any organization and any health system. Point I made right at the beginning, um, the shopping list is there, but it, you've got to work through sequencing, bundling of policies, funding, and sustained implementation. We fall short so often because we don't sustain implementation of good ideas. Policy attention waivers, it moves on. We've got to try and ensure that policymakers and those who fund the implementation are held to account and deliver on these types of interventions long term, because otherwise we have got real problems. James, and on the right hand uh, James there, it's Julie speaking. We've yeah. only got a moment left and we'd love to ask you a couple of quick questions. Sure. So if you could wrap up okay. efficiently, thanks. I'll do that. I'll shift right to the final slide then. Blueprint uh, for a better future. We don't have nurses, we don't have a better future. So we need a better nursing future in order for health systems to be improved. There are about half a dozen issues that need to be considered in all systems. And I've got safe staffing levels at the top there. Uh, the others, I think, hang together pretty well. We need to have a fully funded national workforce plan, which is the bottom bullet point there. And um, at year end, I'm hoping that the new Labour government might um, get into that space, which has been unoccupied for, uh, what, 10, 12 years now. Um, and in between those two, education needs to be examined particularly, and we need to have proper commitment to ethical international recruitment. So I'll end there. Thanks for your attention, and if there is time for q and I'm, I'm happy to take that now. If people want to get in touch by email, I'll be happy to respond also. Thank you. James, it was absolutely fabulous. We're, we're very close to morning tea, but I would love to take one or two quick questions. Thank you, Anne. James, how does one account for Australia's reliance on foreign nurses when we train so many nursing graduates? And where are the Australian nursing, nursing graduates going, or nurses going, and midwives, obviously? Uh, <clears throat> I think there's, there's, there's a couple of issues. One is the, the data presented was proportion of those who are, in, are internationally trained. It doesn't tell us when they arrived. Um, and what Australia has is decades and decades of recruitment of nurses coming from a range of countries. So 
it's partly explained by that. It's not all happened in the last year or two. Uh, I think in terms of the, uh, the, the relatively high level of graduates you have, again, this is pretty recent. It's been about the, the last 10 years since the cap was taken off that the, the numbers have escalated so quickly. And there clearly are system mismatch issues that need to be worked through in terms of uh, where the nurses are educated versus where the jobs might be and what types of jobs are vacant versus what skills the nurses are coming out with. I think there's you know, clearly questions to be worked through there. That's not just an issue for Australia, but it's perhaps more pronounced with you. One more quick question, please, Anne. Thank you. Um, I think um, it was reported this week that the Philippines were pushing back um, against Australia and told Australia to train our, nurse, our own nurses and midwives, or nurses in particular. Do you think we'll see more of this from other countries in Australia? Um, I, I think we will see more countries that are being impacted negatively raising it as an issue and trying to push back. The, the problem often is that there is um, a power imbalance. The countries that have been hit um, most negatively by some, some of this are, are not politically powerful or influential. So they do need to work in, in collective with the, the World Health Organization to get some balance and shine a light on what's happening to ensure that it is ethical. Ladies and gentlemen, the only thing wrong with this extraordinary professor with his analysis is the failure to have a photograph of himself in a kilt. <laughs> we urge you to consider it next time, sir, but a big round of applause. Thanks very much. The last time I wore a kilt, I was seven, so um, the photograph might not do me full justice. But thanks very much anyway. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that this land was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.